Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well, no matter where you live in the world. But it sure is good to be back on the air with you guys. I know that it, was, it wasn't too terribly long ago that I was on the air last. And what do you know? I'm here again. It is hard to believe that tomorrow um, is the last Friday for the month of January. And as I said from the previous podcast, and I'll say here again, uh, the start of this uh, year has certainly uh, flown by. But that's what happens uh, the older we get in life, uh, whether we like it or not. One thing I do know is that um, we have uh, certainly uh, covered a lot of ground in these uh, last two uh, podcast uh, segment episodes to our new series, The Tragedy of uh, Benedict Arnold. And from what I've seen so far, uh, play results... uh, a lot of you are coming to the realization that there's more to Benedict Arnold than probably what you all were told from uh, school textbooks uh, years past. Well, in this uh, podcast uh, segment episode, we're going to uh, learn about whether or not uh, Benedict Arnold's um, advancement that is, um, advancement in terms of education will be able to go on. Obviously, we know he has uh, returned. Um, he has returned to uh, Norwich, but he has returned under some uh, unpleasant circumstances that he never thought would have ever occurred. And we uh, have come to the realization that that there was no such thing as a perfect family, even in colonial days for colonial uh, America. But that alcohol itself, or rather uh, alcoholism. Uh, was in fact a problem even in uh, colonial day times. And yes, we have learned that the Connecticut uh, legislature uh, did go above and beyond to do whatever uh, was necessary in um, curtailing uh, the problem so that it would not become a, a rampant uh, widespread issue. And of course, I'm, I know many of you are wondering, you know, how in the world could a man like Benedict Arnold's father or rather I should say Captain Benedict Arnold, whom is so well-revered, or who was so well-revered, now all of a sudden be doing a complete 360. Well, it might be fair to say that one does not have to be from um, from a lower-ranked status of the society that they live in to experience something like alcoholism. I think it's fair to say that... Um, that no matter where one's rank stands in society, nobody is immune to um, hurdles, nobody is immune to um, unforeseen circumstances that, yes, could be beyond their control, but nobody is also immune uh, to doing, um, or rather I should say, nobody is immune uh, from partaking in um, activities that could lead them down not only just the wrong path, but could lead them into a tremendous state of undoing that will ultimately cause their, um, their uh, what we might say is their fall from grace. Uh, you know, all of us have grace, but it's up to us as to how we uh, maintain our grace, uh, not only in the best of times, but even in the most uh, challenging of times that life itself uh, presents. So in this uh, podcast uh, series episode, we're going to learn... Um, not only about whether or not Benedict Arnold, young Benedict Arnold himself, will advance um, education-wise, but if he were to advance, 
there has to be some kind of a connection given his um his father's uh, finances are in a bad state of disarray and if they are in a bad state of disarray what potential does benedict arnold have going forward that will not only help uh, modify his current situation but will help um, potentially erase any of these um, most recent uh, misfortunes that won't have to um, that won't have to uh, carry over with him no matter where he goes um, down the road as he uh, gets older. And another um, matter that another of uh, a handful of matters that we will discuss uh, would pertain to um, what what is going to be going on in the world uh, by the mid to late 1750s and how it would uh, impact uh, young Benedict Arnold. So our first uh, leadoff question uh, for this uh, podcast segment to the tragedy of Benedict Arnold by Joyce Lee Malcolm is the following. Did Hannah Arnold, being Benedict's mother, make every attempt, or rather I should say good faith effort, behind keeping her husband's shipping business along with his uh, business shop afloat? Do you personally believe that Benedict Arnold's mother, Mrs. Hannah Arnold, made every attempt to the best of her ability in keeping her husband's shipping business along with his business shop afloat? Uh, The answer is yes. She did everything possible to the best of her abilities given the circumstances she herself was facing in paying outstanding bills, or I should say debts, whose limits, unfortunately, knew no end game, while also maintaining to running the home. So in other words, she's doing more than just trying to salvage what's left of her husband's business and shop. She's also having to run the home. Norwich, Connecticut, um, was one of those towns where neighbors knew one another very well. I don't know if it would be fair to say, or if it's really appropriate to say, that you that Norwich, that Norwich, Connecticut, would resemble something like uh, the introductory song uh, to the uh, TV sitcom Cheers, where they say at the end, you know, you want to go where everyone knows your name, and they're always glad you came. Well, it's one thing to go where everyone knows your name, but sadly for uh, Captain um, Benedict Arnold. I don't know if the community of Norwich will eventually be glad to know that they knew his name long term. So nonetheless, Norwich, Connecticut is one of those towns where neighbors know one another very well. The Arnold family's financial state of affairs, including Captain Arnold's alcoholism, did not go undetected by the greater community. So Captain Arnold's um, problems are really seen as an embarrassment. However, as much of as an embarrassment as it poses, there is widespread sympathy for Mrs. Hannah Arnold. Why is that? Well, for one, um, Hannah Arnold's uh, family, uh, her side, uh, given that she's connected to the Lathrop's, the Lathrop's uh, were very, um, how do I say, they were a very um, 
well-to-do uh, family in Norwich, Connecticut, whom uh, Hannah Arnold's related to, it's one thing for um, for the elder Benedict Arnold to have married into a prominent family, but by not holding up his standards of proper virtue in the community is an even bigger embarrassment. So by, uh, by not demonstrating good character, by not demonstrating good judgment, it really is a slap in the face. He's basically disgracing a woman who gave him everything that he could have possibly imagined having. As a matter of fact, uh, Benedict Arnold, uh, the elder Benedict Arnold, his status elevated largely in part because of whom he married. You know, maybe it's fair to draw a comparison to when uh, George Washington in 1759 married Martha Dandridge Custis, who not only uh, was a widow at the time, but she was one of the wealthiest women in Virginia. And for George Washington to, mar to have married Martha, his status also enhanced uh, tremendously. But it was one thing to have married the wealthiest woman in Virginia, but by doing so, he had to also... Um, consult with her on many of uh, financial affairs because um, given that 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 she inherited um, her um, her first um, husband's uh, fortune in order for George to uh, be able to do what was necessary in terms of business affairs he had to go through Martha as well as for uh, purchases on such essential uh, top-of-the-line items perhaps like clothing but nonetheless for uh, Captain uh, Benedict Arnold, you know, to uh, marry someone of um, of high-end status who is uh, connected to a, another prominent family in Norwich, Connecticut, I mean, that onto itself is a big deal, but to uh, not uphold um, proper um, values uh, regarding decency and virtue, that is definitely a red, a red flag that that can ultimately lead to potential disgrace within the community onto itself. Was failure um, to pay an outstanding debt considered a crime? What do you all think? I mean, in today's time, if we don't pay a bill, we can see um, a further increase in um, interest percentage on a credit card. If we don't pay a bill, um, we would be getting uh, phone calls left and right from the company saying that if you don't pay your bill within, say, five to ten business days, uh, we can, you know, say, cut the water off to your house. So in colonial times, was failure to pay an outstanding debt, regardless of the transaction, failure to pay that, that outstanding debt, was it considered a crime? Yes. For starters, there were no public bankruptcy laws on the books in Connecticut. Secondly, men, given they were the predominant breadwinners in colonial days, would get sent to prison and if unable to pay uh, debts. And we're talking about debts, folks. Even debts themselves, the way debts can be termed is vague. But uh, the best way to define a debt is whether or not it's a business or private. Business, a business debt would be one based upon the business or uh, the trade profession you're in. If it's a, a private debt, it might 
pertain to obviously something that is uh, non-business uh, related. Failure to pay a debt, or let alone failure to pay debts, meant staying in prison until the offender, or I should say the debtor, found a way to make the payment. Well, for, ben for young Benedict Arnold, things didn't get any better, folks. A sheriff showed up at the Arnold estate with demands for all payments of family debts. Can you imagine being young Benedict Arnold and all of a sudden you see the sheriff coming up to your to your estate and confronting Mr. Captain and Mrs. Arnold and demanding that uh, that there be um, all payments of family debts made already but up front with the sheriff. Sadly, the Arnold family is short on money, so no matter how hard Hannah Arnold had tried to keep her husband's business afloat, it simply was not enough to pay whatever ex existing outstanding debts uh, remained. So the sheriff uh, went about engaging in the seizing and removal of possessions equivalent to the money required to pay back the all outstanding debt. The sheriff told Captain Arnold he had up to 20 days to come up with money on outstanding debts and avoid the worst-case scenario possible. What do you think that worst, the worst-case scenario would have been during the time in which the Arnold family was living? To me, the worst thing that could have happened, as uh, Joyce Lee Malcolm noted in her book, would have been the selling of personal family property at public auction. So can you imagine if you're the Joneses and you're going to a public auction in Norwich and up for um, sale is a fine um, a fine uh, chair, for example, or a fine uh, table belonging to the Arnold family and you have the potential to buy something that once belonged to the um, that once uh, was in the possession of the Arnold family, but now it's no longer because of uh, Captain Arnold's inability to pay off uh, existing debts. So yes, to me, the worst uh, the worst case scenario was this would have been the selling of personal family property at a public auction. Do the Lathrop fa do uh, Lathrop family relatives intervene? You know, I've mentioned them quite a bit, so I'm sure some of you are now wondering, are the Lathrop, is the Lathrop family going to get involved? The answer is yes. The Lathrop family, um, some of their relatives come to Hannah's assistance. Brothers Daniel and Joseph Lathrop, both men were educated at Yale College, and each of them were Norwich's first pharmacists. Daniel became the first trained pharmacist in Connecticut. And uh, the brothers uh, established apothecary shop. The, the apothecary shop that the brothers established, it just so happens that it was the only one present along the entire route from Boston to New York. Remember, folks, not everybody uh, had access maybe to an apothecary, or we have to keep in mind that that there weren't apothecary shops um, left and right, no matter where your travels were taking you. So keep in mind that um, 
that for uh, Daniel and Joseph Lathrop, their apothecary shop was the only one that existed along the entire route from Boston to New York. Dr. Daniel Lathrop agreed to pay 300 pounds required to keep Captain Arnold from going into prison. 300 pounds, wow, I can't imagine what that would be in today's money, but for someone to have that kind of money to keep a, you know, a, a family member from having to go to prison, well, that, that, that's, that says a lot right there. This also included the prevention of personal possessions from entering public auction. The Lathrops also took over the mortgage on the Arnold family estate. If you have this kind of money, not only to pay um, in order to keep um, someone like Captain Arnold from going into prison, as well as being able to take over the mortgage, you must be very well off. Because not everybody could even have, um, very few people could have uh, scrapped, could have come up with that kind of money to be able to um, pay uh, not just uh, a debt, but maybe perhaps uh, pay um, pay uh, a creditor up front to be able to prevent uh, someone uh, being that of a family relative from uh, having to ultimately go to jail. I mean, it's fair to say that obviously the Lathrop's are in the um, perhaps elite one to two percent of Connecticut society. In other words, they are in the um, truly represent what's called the upper class, uh, really the rich. Would Dr. Uh, Daniel Lathrop and his brother uh, Joshua take in young, or rather I should say uh, Joseph, pardon me, uh, would Dr. Daniel Lathrop and his brother uh, Joseph take in young 14-year-old uh, Benedict Arnold? Yes, both brothers uh, took young Benedict on as an apprentice where they looked after him as well as instructing him in their apothecary shop, what we would call a trade uh, practice. So Hannah and Captain Arnold, and I, and I uh, applaud Captain Arnold for going along with this, so Hannah and Captain Arnold signed a seven-year apprenticeship uh, contract form, allowing their only surviving son a chance to have opportunity in making it big somewhere career-wise. The contract placed him in binding work status with the Lathrop brothers until he reached the age of 21. Of course, when I think of uh, someone reaching the age of 21 in today's time in the United States, they're legally old enough to drink. But it is also hard to believe that uh, next year will mark 40 years uh, when Congress uh, changed uh, the drinking age from uh, 18 to 21. So I do have to remind myself that for a long period of time, when someone turned 18, well before 1984, and leading up to 1984, they were still, uh, they were uh, allowed to um, drink. I mean, of course, when you're 18 years old here in the United States, you are technically considered an adult. But at eight, but for many of years, uh, when one reached the age of 18, they were allowed to drink. So, so yes, uh, for Benedict Arnold, he is uh, in binding work status with the Lathrop brothers until he reaches age of 21. Hannah and Captain Arnold had still been able to provide their only surviving son with 
potential advancement in further educational studies, but instead of Yale College, the saving grace came through the Lathrop family. And how true it is. Without, if, uh, I don't mean it the wrong way, uh, but if Hannah Arnold did not have the connections that she had, I don't know what kind of education Benedict would have uh, been able to have attained. He may have gotten some education uh, somewhere, but it's just hard to know where where he would have gotten his where he would have been able to have gotten um, the proper education that he did deserve. So, what um, profession is Benedict Arnold going into, folks? The apothecary profession. So, is it fair to say that the apothecary profession? is going to involve medicines, yes, because when we go to an apothecary in modern day times, are we going to um, pick up, are we going there to pick up medicines? Yes. Are we also going there to ask uh, pharmacists questions about um, a medicine or medicines that we take? Sure. So that's what they're also doing in colonial times. I know it sounds cheesy, but hey, this is you know, this is something that shouldn't be forgotten. This isn't something that should be taken for granted. The bottom line, folks, is that um, that even in colonial times, the apothecary profession was both respected and respectable. Respected would pertain to the greater public. Respectable is being that of a noteworthy profession to enter into. So Benedict, uh, young Benedict Arnold, uh, went to live with Dr. Daniel Lathrop and his wife, Jerusha, whom each treated young Benedict like their own child. Sadly, um, Dr. Daniel Lathrop and his wife, Jerusha, did have three children, but sadly, they all died in infancy. And sadly, that happened a lot in colonial times, folks. Remember I said from the other um, podcast back at the start of the week how it was common for families to have 12 children or perhaps just over 12 children. For one, you know, life expectancy wasn't high, but your intent, but the intentions were that if you had 12 children, you would have hoped that six or seven would have lived to adulthood. In some instances, though, um, not every family, say, who had 12 children in colonial days were fortunate enough to have um, half of their children survive um, into adulthood. I do know that um, from a book I'd read um, last year, it was on uh, Samuel Adams, John Adams's cousin. Samuel Adams was one of 12 children, but sadly, he was only one of three out of the 12 children whom actually survived not only past infancy, but made it into adulthood. So that tells you right there that only 25% of the children that um, Samuel Adams' parents bore, only 25% survived. So nonetheless, it's very sad that um, Dr. Daniel Lathrop and his uh, wife lost uh, their children in infancy. But nonetheless, they are... um, I, I, they are very um, excited about having um, Benedict Arnold um, come to live with them, but also um, are overseeing to it that he um, that he meets their um, expectations. That he, you know, this apprenticeship is not a leisure uh, job, folks. I mean, think of it as like a modern day internship. 
I mean, it was considered an internship in colonial times, but it's not something that you that Benedict Arnold would will be taking lightly nor taking for granted. Now, it's interesting to note that uh, Jerusha Lathrop, she was the daughter of Joseph Talcott, whom was the first native-born governor of Connecticut. You never know about connections, even in colonial days, when um, when man and woman married and uh, the connections that, um, that were intertwined. Well, Benedict Arnold worked very hard for the Lathrops, and some of his duties, or rather I should say one of his duties, Involved um, ha- involved uh, the constant um, remembering of um, of what's called integrity and um, makeup structure, or what I what would be fair to say are the ingredients behind um, many uh, medicines. In other words, Benedict Arnold's got to know um, what are the uh, proper um, ingredients behind making this medicine. It cannot be altered. Um, it must uh, meet the proper, um, what do you call it, formula criteria. Any alterations could um, could not only just jeopardize the structure of the medicine, but perhaps could jeopardize a, a patient's well-being. You know, there was a constant activity um, happening um, from ships unloading their cargoes to setting sail onward to the next destination. Uh, the Lathrops were getting all their goods from England, that's a big deal. I mean, because think about it. By the time Benedict Arnold is doing his apprenticeship, the thought of, um, the thought of uh, Britain's uh, subjects being, uh, you know, her sub- the thought of Britain's North American uh, subjects being her 13 colonies, the thought of them rebelling against the mother country during the time that Benedict Arnold is... Um, partaking in, in his apprenticeship is just not even, um, it's not even uh, a reality. It's not even something that um, would exist in the minds of really anybody, because everybody right now is very um, happy being a subject to the crown. Relations are good, not just, um, you know, say from a domestic front, but just relations all in general are good. So, hey, I mean, what in the world out there could uh, result in a, a three, 360 reversal? Well, we've got something important to, to discuss here at this moment that might be considered breaking news of its time. What other conflict broke out along America's frontier starting in 1756? The Seven Years' War, a.k.a. French and Indian War. Around 1757, at age 16, young Benedict Arnold was old enough to join the Connecticut militia. 1757 saw French forces make attempted plans in taking control of New York, which which also meant jeopardizing the well-being of New England colonies. Well, why would um, taking control of New York jeopardize uh, New England colonies? Well, uh, for starters, there are a couple of New England colonies that do border um, New York, most notably uh, Connecticut and Massachusetts. Of course, Vermont's not in the picture, but as we all know now, that Vermont borders both New York and New Hampshire. So at that time, 
New York and New Hampshire would have been fighting over the uh, territory that we now know as present-day Vermont. But the bigger problem uh, would be whether or not if the French were to uh, attain allies being that of Indian allies. We don't know what consequences could lie in store, but what we do know is that um, given that New York does border you know, two New England colonies, that if the French did take control of New York, that also means the French have potential to go eastward into Massachusetts and Connecticut, and then perhaps um, elsewhere with the, with the ultimate goal of conquering New England. So this technically could be seen as like a matter of national security. Each of Britain's 13 North American colonies had a militia of men between the ages of 16 and 60. Members had to keep arms, being that of a musket or a rifle, and ammunition on hand at any moment's notice to partaking in drilling practices multiple times a year. British and French forces reinforced current troop levels by going about gathering local militia to recruiting Indian tribes as potential allies. In New York, and there would be um, a lot of um, fighting in the Seven Years' War in New York, the fighting occurred around Lake Ontario, what we now know is, uh, you know, the um, yeah, around Lake Ontario, uh, the Mohawk Valley, the eastern waterways of Lake Champlain and Lake George. And New York State's a big state, folks. So you think about how many, how much uh, area of the state, given that um, New York is uh, surrounded, uh, in the northern part of the state, is surrounded by uh, the St. Lawrence River, and then you've got. Um, Two Great Lakes, Lake Erie, Lake Ontario. It is a lot to, um, it's a lot of um, open, um, what do you call it? It's a lot of open water. And, you know, think about this too. You've got um, French forces that can go from point A to point B across the water. And then who can you be transporting? Indians. You could transport them. You know, the Iroquois Nation, uh, one of the largest. Um, powerful tribes in, uh, in the Northeast, not just tribes, but Confederacy being that of the Iroquois, well, not, just, not the Iroquois, but the uh, Seneca, the Canandaigua, Oneida, Onondaga, uh, just to name um, a handful. Uh, I know there's a, um, a can, uh, Canandaigua, Onondaga, Seneca, Cayuga, Oneida. There we go. We got five tribes there. They're some of the most powerful tribes. So, if the French can align themselves with the, the Iroquois nation, boy, they are in uh, top-notch shape. Um, but a sixth uh, nation did emerge uh, to join the Iroquois, that they ultimate, the League of the Iroquois that became uh, the Sixth Nation tribe, being the Tuscarora in uh, 1722. Had the French and Indian War uh, begun well for British forces in 1756? No. And this kind of comes as a shocker because, you know, for years in the French, when we've learned about the French and Indian War, it, it seems like that, that the British didn't really endure any setbacks. They, if they lost a battle, they, they rebounded very quickly and, and uh, were able to beat the French when they encountered them uh, at some other uh, spot along the frontier. But 
I hate to tell you this, folks, for about the first two years of the French and Indian War, it, it was a disaster for, the, for British forces. But for 1756, uh, just less than uh, three months after arriving into Montreal, Quebec, French Major General Louis-Joseph de Montcalm led the French army 3,000 strong, including colonial militia and Indians. And I used to always think that if, that if colonial militia participated in this war, I was always convinced they were on the side of the British. And I learned, uh, when having read this book, that uh, no, that was not the case. There were colonial militia who uh, were on the side of the French. That's how sensitive um, relations were between the French and the British in terms of uh, settlements uh, not only along the frontier, but settlements along the eastern seaboard. So nonetheless, um, General Louis, or Major General Louis Joseph de Montcalm led French army 3,000 strong, including colonial militia and Indians, by attacking Fort Oswego along the western end of Lake Ontario. And for those of you who aren't familiar where Oswego is, it is just uh, south of Syracuse. It's in what's called the uh, Snow Belt uh, region of uh, central New York, but it's more so in north-central New York, but right along uh, Lake Ontario. And if you go just a little bit north of Oswego, you go into what's called the Tug Hill Country, uh, Tug Hill Country, Thousand Islands region, but... Uh, Another uh, town uh, that's very well known in the Tug Hill region is uh, Lowellville in uh, Lewis County. So this uh, raid on Fort Oswego was, it was very disas disastrous for the British, but yet a success for the French. The raid resulted in 1,700 prisoners getting captured, including 121 cannon or you know, artillery pieces, the defeat at Fort Oswego halted British plans behind attacking French forts on Lake Ontario, including a potential invasion of Canada. Well, when you lose about 121 um, cannon artillery pieces, yeah, you talk about a huge, tremendous setback that's going to take quite some time to recover from. 1757 wasn't any better for British forces, given leadership from high above fluctuated, which meant there was more time having to be spent on the defense versus going on the offensive. The French and their Indian allies plundered western settlements, captured and destroyed uh, a fort known as Fort Bull. B-U-L-L uh, was a small British fort in central New York intended to protect the British supply line but the French, believe it or not, folks, they seized 45,000 pounds of gunpowder. The loss of Fort Bull and the supplies, including the supplies, had negative impact on Britain's plans to fight the French throughout 1757. You know, it's one thing to lose a couple thousand pounds of gunpowder. That's bad enough. But, to, but for the French to seize 45,000 pounds of gunpowder... At this fort, it almost seems as though the British, the biggest mistake the British made was that they put all their eggs in one basket. In other words, they shouldn't have probably, probably been putting all of their supplies into this one fort. Don't you think it would have been fair to have uh, constructed a couple of other forts where, okay, if, if the French did get uh, access to um, supplies at one fort, We've got backup in three other locations, 
and hopefully we could do whatever if you're on the British side you're the objective would need to be that they are dis, undisclosed um, is in every way possible so that you don't run the risk of uh, tipping off the enemy or someone from within tipping off the enemy but it would be fair to say that you would not want to put all your eggs in one basket and putting all of your munitions and supplies into one uh, fort if it were me and I was a commander during this time I would have said look we need um, more options, but we also need to um, take some of our supplies and put them into different um, into different facilities because if everything is seized at once, we have nothing to fall back on. We, we've got nothing to defend ourselves. We have nothing that will protect us short and long term. Perhaps this might be a lesson down the road um, somewhere in time when things do get a little bit better for the British. January 1757 saw French troop forces ambush British troops. Ambush, folks, you know, surprise attack. No advance warning. It's just, it's, uh, what do you call it, an attack that comes at lightning force. That, you know, okay, the British have been uh, surprised in an ambush. That means they never had any time to uh, prepare themselves, in other words, get in position, assemble their uh, muskets or rifles to where they were in um, a loading uh, position where someone could have said, you know, present your arms. Well, I don't know if they would have had time to say present your arms, but to but to be in a position where basically you would need to stand your own ground and, and fire upon if necessary, if uh, threatened. So, French troop forces have successfully ambushed British troops already armed. Okay, well, these guys were already armed. How could... Were they just caught off guard so quickly? That's what I have to wonder. But the scary part is the British troops were already armed, but yet did not... But yet weren't able to uh, fire a shot in terms of self-defense. So the ambush happened near uh, Fort Ticonderoga on Lake Champlain's uh, southern end. February of 1757, the French made successful, they made a successful surprise attack on Fort William Henry's outbuildings where supplies were seized. Gosh, I tell you, it, it seems like maybe the French and the Indians have done some homework ahead of time, but at the same time, the Indians are familiar, the Indians of New York State it's not, you know, one part of New York State that they're familiar with, but it is fair to say that the Iroquois Nation pretty much um, comprises a good swath of uh, New York State. But the bottom line is, folks, is that the British have been um, outsmarted. The British have been um, outmaneuvered. They have been outplayed in every facet. Offense, defense, and special teams. It's fair to say that this has been a, like a football game where nothing has gone right. They have been defeated in all three phases of this uh, war so far. What did General Daniel Webb, who is the British uh, commander at Fort Edward, uh, 16 miles from Fort William Henry, do following the French uh, successes at nearby forts? He wrote messages to New England governors, including New York's governor, by sending militia to Fort Edward in defending off General Montcalm's forces. The call for help got, a, got fast responses, most notably in Connecticut, 
where 5,000 men answered the call of duty, 16-year-old Benedict Arnold joined up with 150, 154 Norwich men en route to Albany, 150 miles away. I don't believe they're going to have any cars, folks, uh, or, or let alone planes or um, helicopters, chopters to get them to Albany very quickly. We could be looking at probably just over a week before uh, the Connecticut militia is going to be able to uh, successfully get into, uh, into New York State. Prior to officially arriving at Fort William Henry, the fort surrendered. The fort surrendered to French and Indians, but in a dishonorable outcome. The French and the Indians massacred British troops outside the fort. It almost seems like the rules of warfare do not um, exist for, um, for, the, for the French and the Indians. August 3rd to the 9th of 1757, which was the time frame of when Fort William Henry siege took place. Uh, Fort William Henry is located on Lake George's southern end. August 9th saw General Montcalm prepare agreement talks, which included uh, ensuring uh, safe travels for British soldiers and their families to nearby Fort Edward. The French agreed to care for those British peoples, being troops and civilians, sick and injured whom could not travel, including returning them once better. The British agreed to return all French prisoners to the French at Fort Carillon, no later by November 1757. General Montcalm's Indian allies. Here's an undoing right here on part of the French. General Montcalm's Indian allies got excluded from negotiation discussions amongst French and British military officers. A huge no-no. Indian allies on the side of General Montcalm were told not to harm nor plunder anything pertaining to the already dejected British. August 10th, the day which the British were to embark on Fort Edward, it never happened. How so? Montcalm's Indian allies seized the ab seized abandoned Fort William Henry, where they assaulted 70 British troops already sick and wounded. The Indians continued harassing people into late evening come early morning August the 10th, a barrage of brutality ensued where Montcalm's Indian allies killed to butchering wounded British troops, including, including taking countless British families as hostages where they got sent to Canada and ultimately died. Do you think that is something that most, um, if not most, the majority of colonial America's peoples whom are loyal to the crown, are going to find acceptable. Obvious, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Did any British soldiers, including family and civilians, make it into Fort Edward? Yes, but details to reports behind Indian onslaught soon reached young Benedict Arnold and the rest of his fellow Connecticut militiamen, once arriving into Albany, where rage in disgust soon took over, and rightfully so. I cannot imagine even what the look on young Benedict Arnold's face was when he learned about this, but quite frankly, it would be considered breaking news for its time. 
General Montcalm and French troops to Indian allies retreated back north. The Connecticut and New York militias were ultimately um, halted from going after the French altogether. The Connecticut militia spent 18 days of servicing their colony in the midst of horrific injustices ensued against British troop uh, forces. The services alone, folks, cost the Connecticut colony 15,000 pounds. We might think of that in today's time as a, as a waste of taxpayer dollars. Anti-French and anti-Catholic sentiment heavily increased. Um, the aftermath of the Fort William Henry massacre led to prohibiting any British commander from giving French forces the opportunity, opportunity to surrender with full war honors. Young Benedict viewed the French with great disdain, knowing how bad the British uh, were treated. Well, if I was in his shoes, I would, I would feel the same way too. Not to sound political, but we must remember what Benedict Arnold is uh, dealing with at this time, along with countless other militiamen and um, civilians whom are uh, loyal to the crown. Young Benedict was also angered by the fact that militia forces were held back and seeking retaliation against General Montcalm's French troops and Indians. And rightfully so. This experience, however, if there's anything good that might have come out of it, helped shape young Benedict's uh, strategical thinking with such thoughts as how to lead men into danger, hurdles behind not having adequate provisions. So there are a lot of what-ifs now. Okay, what if something like this happens in the future? How can we be better prepared? And if, and if we are better prepared, are we going to emerge victorious? How did people's attitudes in Norwich uh, change, in Norwich, Connecticut, I should say, change after 1757 regarding the Seven Years' War? They changed for the better. 1758 saw British forces make strong gains resulting in victories while French forces became plagued by multiple problems. 1760, the majority, if not most, fighting no longer existed. The British were on their way to removing French forces from eastern North America. Quite the 360 reversal, to say the least, compared to what was going on three to four years earlier. So, come 1760, if you're on the side of the British, what could you say? Are we better off now than we were four years ago when this war first started? Heck yes. Young Benedict Arnold, through uh, working as an apprentice to the Lathrops, helped contribute to the British victory successes indirectly by assisting the Lathrops in selling medicines to medical supplies for the British Army and militia. The Lathrop's business prospered in time of war, and we should be reminded that um, that for uh, many of uh, years, and even when um, when colonies were being established in North America, they did revolve around wartime purposes because the colonies never knew when war itself would break out, but who they were going to be on the side of. So they always needed to have um, an abundance of supplies geared towards anything that was uh, war-related. So, yes, uh, the Lathrop's business uh, prospered in time of war. 
they viewed trade with Britain as vital, young Benedict learned the importance of seeing opportunities in purchasing goods where demand itself would become available to sell and resupply, to learning how to interact with producers, being the sellers, to consumers, as we know, or the customers, the more knowledge he sought and gained, the greater the Lathrop's confidence in him grew. How about this question? While young Benedict was benefiting from being under the, Lathrop's, under the Lathrop family's guidance, how did Hannah Arnold fare? Well, Benedict's mother um, was in a state of exhaustion with everything going on inside the Arnold household from keeping Captain Arnold's business afloat to raising uh, her younger daughter, being, uh, to raising her only surviving daughter, uh, being Hannah. While overseeing um, Captain Arnold's alcoholism not get any worse. The duties alone wore her out. By mid-August 1789, she became severely ill and died at age 51. She died, um, it, it's sad, she died really as a means of um, being burnt out, exhausted over everything that pretty much came at her um, at a moment's notice. Young Benedict and his mother were very close. Hannah Arnold was revered by the entire Norwich community. At age 18, young Benedict is now the head of the Arnold family. And rightfully so, considering his dad can't um, do anything about his problems. Has the, had the death of Mrs. Hannah Arnold become the final straw for Captain Arnold? Yes. Mrs. Arnold's passing led to Captain Arnold becoming further depressed more difficult to control, and a, in a steep more so into an already out-of-control alcoholism state. 1760 saw 19-year-old Benedict Arnold get promoted to chief clerk of the uh, trading sector to uh, the Lathrop's uh, apothecary business. Young Benedict traveled to the West Indies, including London, where he purchased goods. While all of that was successful, sadly, on May 26th of 1760, a justice of the peace issued a warrant for Captain Arnold's arrest on the ground of public drunkenness. It's one thing to be an alcoholic, folks. I mean, that's an embarrassment to your community. But to engage in acts of public drunkenness? People don't forget that. To, to me, that's an even bigger embarrassment because now the whole community knows about your problem. You've exposed yourself. It, it goes unnoticed. June 1760 saw a church deacon from First Church of Norwich request Captain Arnold come before the congregation to be ridiculed including admittance of sin behind alcohol consumption. Did Captain Arnold take it upon himself to go before his congregation to admit his sins behind alcohol consumption? No, he didn't. He refused to go before the congregation. And there were some other measures that were tried, but nothing, um, nothing, um, nothing changed for the better. 
and we have to keep in mind that there were no such thing as no such things as AA uh, treatment centers um, in colonial times. Before 1760 came to an end, Captain Benedict Arnold died. His death was a blessing to young Benedict and sister Hannah, but the legacy left behind was one of great prominence starting out to setbacks he couldn't make the effort in recovering from, ultimately, ultimately leading to the greatest of undoings, resorting to alcoholism, debts left outstanding from the shipping business, to most of all, greater, what we could say, widespread public shame, the public shame brought on by public drunkenness. A true fall from grace. It's a tragedy unto itself, but it truly is a fall from grace. January 3rd of 1762, uh, Benedict Arnold turned 21, which marked the end of his apprenticeship. A trained apothecary, Arnold himself had become, and a trained apothecary being one who prepared to selling medicines and drugs. The Lathrop family gave the 21-year-old Benedict 500 pounds to buy stock, being goods, where he could start his own business. The young 21-year-old started his new career in New Haven, another busy Connecticut port town, larger than Norwich. It was home to Yale College at New Haven, where he would go about selling medical supplies and books for Yale College students. Well, didn't we learn in the previous podcast that uh, Benedict uh, that young Benedict Arnold was supposed to have um, gone to Yale College. He was. And while his father's misfortunes prevented that from happening, had it not been for the Lathrops, Benedict, Benedict Arnold would not be where he is at age 21. Not just so much because he has turned 21, but because of the apprenticeship he went through, which... Um, made up for um which made up for not you know being able to make it to Yale or attend Yale but by being in New Haven a thriving bustling port town larger than Norwich this is a step up it's a step up in the right direction selling medical supplies books this will give him even more connect more connections yes he had connections in Norwich but perhaps by going to uh, New Haven, he is not only starting a new life, but his objective is to also find ways to erase the past so that the past doesn't stay with him, knowing that, yes, people will remember him. They will remember him because of who his father was. And I can only imagine, I mean, I can't imagine being in Benedict Arnold's shoes and knowing that my father had everything going for him so well, only to let alcohol consumption or consumption of alcohol become his greatest undoing. Yes, it was one thing to be in financial trouble, but to me, the alcohol consumption ruined him. So we've uh, covered a lot of ground tonight, folks, in this uh, podcast segment. I look forward to being back on the air next time. My goal is to get back on the air a little bit sooner than expected. But when we are on the air again next, we're going to learn uh, more about Benedict Arnold's time in uh, New Haven. 
We're also going to learn about how um, how um, there is a good reason to believe that, okay, that you know the British emerged victorious from the Seven Years' War, but we're also going to learn about um, how emerging victorious on one hand is great, but that but that there does come a cost with emer with emerging victorious after um, the Seven Years' War that might be considered for better or for worse. Thank you for your time as always. Uh, you guys are great listeners. Without you all, I don't know where I would be, but thank you again from the bottom of my heart. Without you guys, um, I'm not sure where, where things would be right now, but um, thanks to you all. Um, I am where I, I am currently where I am and um, hope to continue to be in the right direction, but you guys have made this happen. Thank you again, and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe.